Welcome to Behold and Become, a podcast about faith with me, Robert Black. Welcome to episode 42 of Behold and Become. Today I'm beginning a series on atonement that will run through the season of Lent. So, first things first, what is atonement? Well, as you might guess from how the word sounds, it's about reconciling and unifying things. At one meant putting things back together. When used in the Christian context, atonement is about our being united and reconciled and made one with God, despite our sins and our rebellion against God. Generally, the word atonement is interchangeable with the word salvation, as they cover the same ground, even if there are slightly different linguistic nuances of each. Though we might say that salvation implies being saved from something, while atonement implies being united with something, don't put too much energy into trying to decide which of those two words is best given the situation. They Again, they cover the same ground. Now, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the word is kipper, which means to cover, as in the covering over of guilt. Other definitions for this word include pacifying or a coating that goes over something. And in the Greek of the New Testament, the word is halasmos, which has a connotation of making an appeasement, and sometimes it's related to the sacrifice of the sin offering. The root of the word, though, is about being cheerful and happy, so atonement grows out of the understanding of having things be as they should, with all parties being satisfied. So, this series is going to be exploring the atoning and the saving event of our faith the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So the question of atonement really is, how does atonement come to be as the result of the death of Jesus? Or even more simply, how does the cross save? Now, there's a book that, in full disclosure, I haven't read it. Well, I've read the introduction as a Kindle sample, but I don't own the entire book. But what intrigues me is this book's title, The Mosaic of Atonement. Now, I'm sure it's a great book, but it's one of those books where the title almost gives away too much. The metaphor here is that the atonement is something like a puzzle, both in that we don't fully understand it, but also in that we need different pieces for the full image to come into focus. If we only have one piece of a puzzle, now, Sure, we know that one piece, and depending on that one piece, we may or may not be able to guess what the full puzzle is a depiction of. But we have a deficient view if we think that that one piece is the entire puzzle. And like a puzzle, when it comes to the atonement, the various pieces are interlocking, and they have overlap with one another. And the thing about this metaphor that's helpful is that no single piece is more or less important than any other. You need all the pieces of the puzzle to complete the picture. There's no hierarchy. And likewise, puzzle pieces that are not connected to one another, they're not functioning as they are intended. We have to put them next to each other and have them interlock in dialogue in order to function as they are intended. For you golfers out there, another theologian has said that the way of understanding the atonement is sort of like the different clubs 
that you carry in your golf bag. All of them are necessary, but some of them work better in certain situations because you're probably not going to use your driver on the putting green or a sand wedge from the tee box. You need them all. The author of this book, though, clarifies in the introduction that while puzzle is a helpful metaphor, that metaphor does start to break down when we view the atonement as a puzzle to solve. This is why the book is not called the puzzle of atonement. No, it uses the word mosaic. And if you've ever seen a mosaic, you know that it's about the smaller pieces creating an image that's larger and full of beauty. Well, that's the way these different understandings of the cross function. Individually, they are wonderful gems, but put them together and you have a stunningly beautiful portrait. So what this series is going to do is to explore these various pieces before we consider what the whole picture is about. But before we do so, we ought to heed the warning of C.S. Lewis, who reminds us that the cross is always more important than any explanations that theologians have produced about it. So let us not lose sight of that. He goes on to say, quote, We are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity. That is what has to be believed. Any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did this are all quite secondary. End quote. So in this series, we would do well to keep in mind and trust that atonement has happened. It's sort of like arriving in a new city after a flight. What matters is that the plane landed and got you there. Yes, it might be interesting to know about things like jet streams and Bernoulli's principle and jet propulsion, but at the end of the day, for the passenger, those things don't matter as much as the fact that the architect of the plane knew about those things and put them into the design of things. In this series, I'm going to be drawing on many different resources that I've pulled from my bookshelves, but there are two that I want to mention here in this introduction as recommendations if you want to dig deeper. Now, one is quite short, and one is rather long, but both are absolutely outstanding. The shorter one is called The Sign and the Sacrifice by Rowan Williams. It's just about 100 pages, and each is packed full of wisdom. The longer one may well go down as the most compelling and robust writing about the cross of our generation. It's called The Crucifixion by the Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge, and it comes in at about 600 pages, not counting the index and extensive bibliography. But don't be intimidated by the length of that book if you're interested in it. Just take it slowly. What's so helpful about this book is that Rutledge is an outstanding author and provides copious and helpful footnotes. And she's also a preacher, and this book preaches. It has chapters on many of the motifs and models related to the cross, and it really could serve as a textbook on atonement. I can't recommend that one highly enough. In one of the opening chapters, Rutledge writes, It is in the crucifixion that the nature of God is truly revealed. This is why the cross matters so much. It's the fullest revelation of God. There's a podcast that I enjoy listening called The Bible for Normal People. And on a recent episode of that podcast, the host was exploring the question of what makes Christianity unique 
and distinct from other religions and belief systems. And his conclusion? The cross, the uniqueness of Christianity, is that God dies on a cross. And so we would do well to pay attention to the revelatory nature of this event. As you've probably heard me say before, my understanding of Christian preaching, and really all of Christianity, comes from Matthias Grunewald's Eisenheim altarpiece. The outer part of this work is a crucifixion scene, and maybe another time I'll do a whole episode on this work, but if you're not familiar with it, check it out. Matthias Grunewald, Eisenheim, I-S-E-N-H-E-I-M, altarpiece. Now, as we often see in art, there's some artistic license taken here, because John the Baptist is present at the crucifixion, which we know didn't happen because John was killed before Jesus was. But he's in this particular work of art, and he's pointing with his finger towards the cross with the Latin text of John 3.30 above him. He must increase, and I must decrease. That pointing toward the cross with humility is important. Though the cross, yes, it is gruesome, it is horrendous, but it is also our salvation, and it reveals to us the deepest truths about God and ourselves. As Rutledge writes in summarizing the primacy of the cross, quote, The crucifixion is the touchstone of Christian authenticity, the unique feature by which everything else, including the resurrection, is given its true significance. End quote. Hence, this is a topic that is well worthy of our deeper reflection in Lent. Now, an interesting observation about the cross is that the meanings that we derive from it are not self-evident. When Jesus died the horrendous death of crucifixion, no one looked at that and said, Oh yes, now I see that death has been defeated and that the sins of the world have been taken away by the Lamb of God. The most we get is the Roman centurion in Mark who says, Truly, this man is God's son. But on the evening of Good Friday, the sun still set, and it rose the next morning. And yet, we claim that so much more than meets the eye happened on Good Friday. To borrow the title of a book by the English bishop N.T. Wright, it was the day the revolution began. But we will only understand the cross by turning to the sacred scriptures of Israel to see how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus makes sense of them. And we also pay attention to the Holy Spirit that teaches us through the ages how to understand the cross. And as we consider these various approaches to the cross, we'll see that they developed in different times, depending on what the Spirit had to say to the church at that time. Now, we also have to be clear that none of these approaches that we will consider is the main one. As an example, I, I like to use a wall that's in my home. It's a wall that's got a dozen or so different crosses on it. No two of them look alike at all. And yet, if someone were to look at that wall and ask, well, which of those crosses is the right one? Well, <laughs> rightly, they would look at me and say, what do you mean? They're all crosses. They're all right. Well, it's the same for the atonement theories that we're going to be considering over these few weeks. None of them are the right one, because they are all right ways of viewing the cross and the atonement that it brings. Now, some of these models are going to resonate with you more than others will, and that's fine. But that doesn't mean it's the right one. And this is the wisdom of the church. We have never said how the cross does its saving and atoning work. 
Goodness knows the church has fought over everything and had all sorts of councils to debate things. We've debated who can and cannot be ordained, how to read scripture, how to do liturgy properly, what the essence of the Trinity is, what Jesus would do, but the church has never issued a statement or had a council to define what the cross means. We all know and agree that the cross saves, but by the grace of God, we've never put the label heresy or orthodox on these various interpretations, and that's because of this mosaic approach really does work. As Father Richard Rohr says, everything belongs. And since there is no single right way to view the cross, it means that we can appreciate the cross and be moved by it instead of trying to understand it. We can let it work on us instead of us having to work on it. So as we consider these different models of atonement, instead of evaluating them, try to focus more on seeing how it fits into the glorious and beautiful picture of that phrase that we've all heard before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that all who believe in him may have eternal life. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the blessing of God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen.